1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language, writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have an interview with Dave Itzkoff about his biography of Robin Williams, his new podcast based on the book, and about writing biographies in general. Dave is a culture reporter for The New York Times, where he mostly writes about film, TV, and popular culture. Robin is his fourth book. Before we get to the interview, I do want to remind you that you can watch my new video course on LinkedIn Learning free if you have LinkedIn Premium, access to lynda.com through your library, or want to sign up for the 30-day free trial. Just search those platforms for Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And now, on to the interview. Well, hi, Dave. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Sure. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. So um, I have your newest book, Robin, here, and I've been reading it. And I'm wondering, you know, what inspired you to become a biographer and a memoir writer? You know, someone who writes about people instead of events or issues, for example.
2: I don't know if anything uh, inspired me per se. I think that's just sort of the trajectory that uh, my life took, my career took, uh, you know, as a writer, you just try, I think, all different kinds of things and you just sort of go in the direction that, uh, you know, whichever whichever lanes are open to you and whichever uh, paths keep you going. I've certainly uh, – particularly as a, as a journalist, uh, a lot of the stuff that I write, needless to say, is not about me, but it's often – looking closely at other people's lives and delving into them to the extent that either they'll allow you or you sometimes have to push a little bit beyond what they want to tell you and see what else you can find out about them. So that's uh, that's been one sort of strain of uh, my my career for a while. And the the first couple of books that I wrote were – personal memoirs one uh, the first uh, the first book that I ever wrote was a personal memoir about my own experiences in men's magazines and sort of the earliest days of my own career and then a few years later that that book then led to the opportunity to write an essay about myself and my father, uh, who was uh, a drug addict for, for many years. And then that essay in turn led to the opportunity to write a book about uh, my life with my father and his experience of getting sober and what our lives were like after that. So that those, those processes just kind of, uh, uh, one facilitated the next, facilitated the next. Uh, but at that point also, I think I had kind of written as many memoirs as a person could uh, when you've only been alive. I think by that point I, I wasn't even uh, 35 when—how uh, old was I when Cocaine Son came out? Yeah, 35. So I think after that point, that's, that's like enough memoirs. Uh, so, I, you know, most of the writing that I did for The Times was, uh, you know, more—it was reported pieces. It was, uh, you know, either doing interviews, using primary sources, uh, the next book that I wrote— uh, was just a kind of sort of straightforward classical work of journalism about uh, Paddy Chayefsky and the movie Network, and that was a lot of archival uh, research going through Paddy Chayefsky's papers, talking to the people from the film or from his life that were still around. Uh, uh, that was a little bit more in line with the kinds of things I had been doing at The Times for a while, so that, uh, that kind of – those are all the, the stepping stones.
1: Right. And I know the library approached you about the papers for that book. They had the the writers' or directors' papers that you could look through, and they were thinking it might make a good story for the Times. So how did the book about Robin Williams come about? Was that something also that someone approached you, or is it something that you came across things that you thought were really interesting? How did that happen?
2: It was, it was a little complicated. I, I mean, for one thing, I had written about Robin quite a, a lot, uh, while he was still alive uh, for the Times, uh, including, like, I did a long profile of him. Uh, I guess it would have been uh, 2008, 2009, uh, where he let me go uh, on the road with him for a few days, and that became uh, this this whole story about basically a, 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 a live comedy tour, what would end up being his last stand-up tour, really, uh, that he had tried to do and then had to put on hold because he had... Uh, heart problems and had to get open heart surgery and then recover from that and the whole tour itself was already about the experience of him having uh, basically relapsed into alcoholism and then gone to rehab and gotten sober and uh, divorcing his second wife after getting out of rehab, all these really – uh, difficult things that had happened in, in, in his life. And so that was—all those things were dealt with in the comedy act and, of course, things that he and I uh, had to talk about in uh, in my interviews and conversations with him. Uh, so I got a little taste of his world through that experience and got to meet uh, his manager and uh, his older son, uh, Zach, uh and and you know he and i you know would would i'd write about him uh you know every couple of years whether it was for when he came to new york to do his broadway show uh or when he uh, i did a profile of billy crystal that of course uh robin was was part of and then sadly i wrote uh, his obituary for the times because that was a situation where we had literally nothing on file, nothing ready to to publish for him because nobody uh, had any expectation that that he would die so soon. Uh, so after all those experiences, uh, it just seemed sort of uh, understandable that uh, you know the publishers uh, would be interested in at least speaking to me about doing a book, and I, on my end, wanted to. Feel out some people in Robin's world, both on uh, in his family and in his sort of professional uh, circles, just to see how people would feel, not to say, can I have your permission, but just to make sure if I were to go ahead and do this, how would you feel? Because it was— Uh, a tremendously sensitive subject. And even in the course of writing the book, a lot of the details of his death, uh, that's only when we started learning, you know, really what what had had happened in in his last kind of... Days and, and even hours of his life. Uh, so we had to... right. Really... He
1: ha- didn't he have um, Louis body dementia, and most people didn't know that.
2: No, that that was well. That's exactly that's what had happened, and that was completely unknown at, at the time of of his death. It would take months for essentially his autopsy to be completed, and that was all turned up in in the in the autopsy. That was not. Uh, you know, he certainly was going through a lot of what. In retrospect, people now understand were symptoms of that disease, but it was not anything he'd been formally diagnosed with before he died. Uh, So all of which is to say that, you know, uh, as I'm approaching people either to say, this is a book I'd like to write, or is a book you'd participate in, people are still uh, grieving for him. And we knew it was going to be a process of You know, approaching people very gently and being patient, waiting for uh, people to at least feel like they were in a place that they might want to talk about him being understanding of people that didn't want to participate because those memories were either too sensitive or that were just so intensely personal for them that they didn't want to uh, share them with anybody else and, and, and being understanding of that.
1: Right. I was wondering about that because you know, he was really open with you, which sounds amazing. And then I was wondering it, how it was talking to his friends and family and colleagues, and if you had any people who were more reluctant. And, you know, as a biographer, what can you do to, you know, either try to coax the people to talk to you or maybe find information in other ways if people just won't talk to you. You know, how do you make sure you're providing a balanced view of that person's life and getting the whole big picture?
2: Yeah, I the only I, I mean this this is such a sort of unique case in in a way because of all the sensitivities and the tragedy that that we talked about. and the the one thing I knew, not, not with absolute certainty, but going in, I, I had uh, had some communication with Zach, uh, Robin's older son, and he at least gave an indication that at, at a certain point he might be open to talking with me, and that gave me. Uh, A certain amount of uh, reassurance that at least if somebody uh, that uh, pivotal in in Robin's own family was uh, potentially available or or thinking about it, then then that might be something to build on. But that was almost – it took almost two years before uh, Zach – was in a position to to speak with me, partly because of just what he was dealing with and what his siblings were dealing with. And then there were uh, some, some legal issues going on uh, within the family over Robin's uh, estate. And so that, uh, you know, that all had to be resolved too. Uh, so in the meantime, I just tried to talk around to people that perhaps didn't have a direct connection to the family or weren't so central that uh, it might seem like a kind of imposition or uh, to to ask them. I mean, I, I remember one person that I spoke to very early on was Gary Marshall, who was uh, one of the co-creators of uh, Happy Days and and Mork and Mindy and who had obviously given Robin a, a hugely important break in his career by, uh, you know, casting him as uh, Mork from Ork. And... Uh, that was just such a delightful conversation because it was more about Robin's formative days. It was. It really wasn't—none of the the tragedy or the sadness uh, was encapsulated that. It was about celebrating Robin and remembering him before uh, things really took off for him. And having those kinds of conversations, uh, you know, at, at, a, at an earlier stage in the, uh, the research process, that—I uh, mean, that certainly helped fill in a lot of the story, but also, like— you know, gave me a certain, uh, again, a sense of confidence or reassurance that little by little we would piece this together. And and let's, let's start with, again, people that uh, weren't, uh, you know, so uh, directly connected to uh, what would invariably be the end of the story. Let's talk to the people at the beginning who knew Robin in all these other capacities so that by the time – Uh, You know, it really is time to start talking to the family, to the very best friends. That way, I would have a lot of information that, uh, you know, I could on the one hand, I could be very judicious about the kinds of questions I would ask the people I was still waiting to hear from. And then also those people could know. Uh, that I was really doing my homework. That I, th- I think one fear that I think understandably a lot of these people might have is, was I trying to write something that would be exploitative of Robin or his legacy? Was it some kind of uh, dirt digging expedition? Was it going to make him uh, look bad? Or was it going to paint essentially an, in- an incorrect picture of him? Was I going to just make him seem like uh, a really kind of a uh, messy person with all these problems in his life he obviously did have problems but the, the the more i could show people that i was trying to sort of take in the fullness of his life and also celebrate his talents and his artistic contributions and really uh you, you know just be as comprehensive as possible i think you know i can't be certain but i think that that put more and more people at ease
1: so So you're sensitive and you reassure the family, and it sounds like, you know, you sort of start on the periphery of the people who knew him and work your way in toward the closest people in the family to show them that you're doing your homework and you're not wasting their time. And it also made me wonder, do you start with the big picture and sort of fill in the details along the way, or are you more likely to start with some, you know, interesting anecdotes and really key details and then flesh that out to build the big picture over time?
2: Yeah. I think it's everybody's approach and strategy is going to be different and and differ based on uh, the subject of your book. But in my specific case, I, I literally sat down and made an Excel spreadsheet of every single person I could think of that I would want to talk to and then sort of grouping them by category, whether it was The people in the immediate family or the people closest around Robin, uh, his managers, his assistants, uh, those kinds of people. Then uh, the comedy people Uh, and then – so, you know, all the the stand-ups and the comedy actors that that he knew and then sort of going – You know, through sort of the different eras of his life. So the people that knew him at his various uh, high schools and middle schools, the people that knew him at the different colleges he attended. Juilliard was its own specific little universe because that had some key faculty people that had other students who were famous, students who weren't famous. Then you're talking about his San Francisco comedy career, then his L.A. comedy career, then the Mork and Mindy people, then the Popeye people, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, pretty comprehensive, but trying to keep people grouped by uh, category. And then, uh, y- you know, it, there, were, there were certain people, like I said, who I knew sort of out of the gate, uh, don't go right to them, don't start here, or at least give those people uh, a little more time to process. But then everybody else, it was a little bit of a kind of uh, uh, just a mass uh, outreach, just going one by one through these people and uh, people turning me on to other people, uh, looking at like the back of the album cover for reality, what a concept and realizing that Robin acknowledged this one co-writer whose name I had never seen before and seeking out that person. And then he turned into a a tremendously valuable uh, source and helped connect me to other people Uh, and so on and so forth. You know, every, every person, you know, you would get a few doors slammed in your face for sure. Uh, But people either, uh, some people were, uh, eager to talk or, or willing to talk, some people needed a little bit of time, but did come around. Uh, and often, the people who did talk always had suggestions of, "Hey, here's who else you should try, or have you spoke to so and so yet? Oh no, I haven't, or I didn't, I wasn't aware of that person. Where did? How did they know, Robin? And and little by little, uh, you know that that plan uh, or that grid, uh, you know, came together.
1: Right. Oh, it's important to pull on all those little threads, and you find surprises. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast In more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink, on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal, on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Um, are there times when you were working on biographies that your view of the person changed from what you expected it to be? Did you find things that were so surprising that you had to reconsider the way you were framing the story?
2: Not not in this particular case, I would say. In a way, I think Robin was so open about his life, certainly in the later portions of it, about uh, a lot of the—, the misfortunes he had suffered, all the ways that he had wronged other people and certainly a lot of the, uh, you know, the substance abuse, the drugs and the alcohol, that wasn't a secret. So in that sense, I didn't feel like uh, that was, any of those things were surprising or that writing about it was going to somehow uh, upend how people viewed him or that that was going to disparage him in any way. What I found really fascinating was learning about the the start of his life and the origins of his family and especially about his parents and the lives that they led even before Robin was born. Because I think if you look at sort of the earliest early interviews that Robin gave, he was a little more open, I think, about talking about his parents and at least giving some sense or acknowledgement of really the life of wealth and privilege that he had come from. And then the later he went, he... Uh, either would kind of fall back on kind of stock answers. That, you know, he'd just been asked about those things so many times that he would just kind of, you know, give you like a familiar one-liner and, and that was usually satisfactory to whoever he was talking to. Or he started to get a little bit more uh, closed off about himself. He had had a pretty nasty incident uh, after he divorced his first wife and started dating the woman who had become his second wife. Uh, they gave this interview to People Magazine, and people, port- people portrayed it as if he basically, uh, you know, his nanny, his nanny had robbed the cradle or had basically stolen him away from his first wife. And that experience, I think, so sort of tainted his experience with the press that he became a slightly more walled-off person. But to really learn about the way he had been brought up and that both of his parents had had previous marriages, both had a child from their previous marriage. So Robin had these two half-brothers that he had grown up uh, sort of intermittently alongside. And those brothers, the half-brothers, were also extremely influential people in his life. The parents themselves had led kind of really fascinating lives. His dad was a World War II hero and a real kind of... uh, He had also... Come from a very wealthy upbringing. The mom was a kind of uh, southern debutante, and great great granddad was a, a senator and a governor from uh, Mississippi. All these things. It's like you know. Once you understand exactly who the parents are, you you realize like there's no other and there's no other kind of person that they could have turned out except Robin Williams. That he had this one half of himself that was very outgoing, very forthcoming, kind of zany like his mom, and then a part of himself that was very reticent and very, uh, kind of, uh, you know, hardworking and industrious, but also a little closed off. And that was his dad.
1: So you were talking about uh, Robin Williams' amazing, interesting, fascinating parents, and I had been wondering how you uh, sort of put yourself in an earlier time. I mean, Robin Williams isn't that much older than you. He was born about 35 years before you were, but still, it's a different time. And so how much of your work goes into understanding the culture from which the person you're writing about came. You know, I imagine back then it was much more unusual, for example, for parents to be divorced, for adults to be divorced and then remarried and have half siblings. And, you know, how, how, how much work do you have to do to understand the culture about the person that's the target of your biography?
2: I think it's extremely important. It was something that I really wanted to be careful about and wanted to be thorough about because, Just for starters, those are going to be, unless you're going to to take a very kind of unconventional structure in your writing, that's going to be your first chapter is that person's earliest the earliest years of their life that's where you're kind of uh establishing your own authority to your reader and so if you can't convey that to them if you don't feel at that stage like you know exactly what you're talking about and where this person came from uh, you have lost them for all the subsequent uh chapters so that was extremely important to me and I just also found it so interesting as I started learning about these people and the world that Robin uh came from to me uh uh, you know, I, I think of comedians for the most part, uh, the people that I write about and encounter and the ones uh, you know, who usually become famous, they often come from these lives of kind of deprivation or there's something, something happened to them in their in their childhood, something that, that was withheld from them or uh, you know, they were from lower class or they usually were from uh, some uh, you know, minority group they didn't fit into the wider world and that's why they turned to comedy and none of that really uh, applied to Robin, at least not on the outside so that really it was a kind of a a a mystery to begin with is what what drives a person like that what steers them to the life and the career that he led because he doesn't fit that uh mold or that profile and you know i i just i always just find it kind of interesting to just learn about the people who came from let's say the the era right before me it's just uh you know I I'm I'm a big fan of certainly movies and TV shows from the the 60s and 70s, and it just—I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a grass is always greener kind of situation, but it just feels like the lives that those people led were a little bit more—they just had more going on. There was a little more grit, a lot more conflict. People got into much worse and much more dangerous uh, situations. They treated themselves and their bodies horribly because they didn't know half the things that we know now. Uh, And so all those things, I think, just make them really— uh, interesting and fascinating to me.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it really surprised me when I started reading the book, too, that he had this one very privileged background, a great childhood. It's not what you expect from a comedian is the, the cliché is that, you know, they're troubled. So that was a surprise. And I was think when when a book is so great like this one was, I, I get sucked into this story and I I don't think about the bigger writing issues. But I found myself wondering about Biographies or memoirs, do you, as a writer, do you sort of follow the same story structure? Are you thinking about story structure with the, the conflict, you know, the three conflicts or the hero's journey or, you know, some way of framing the story like, um, you know, fiction writers do? Are you thinking about story structure when you're, when you're putting the work together?
2: Yeah, I don't think I'm sort of taking the, the kind of the Joseph Campbell approach of, you know, which archetype does this fall into? But certainly structure is important Uh, thinking about what the big themes the through lines are going to be because particularly in in Robin's life there are uh, beats that kind of keep coming up whether it's uh, you know uh, uh, certain kinds of uh, movies and movies he likes to make and characters he likes to play or misfortunes that he's going to suffer uh, uh, certainly kind of... uh, uh, You know, in his own mind, certain uh, fears, certain, uh, you know, phobias that he has. What if this happens to me? And then sadly uh, sees them realized in his life and career to a certain extent. And we know how the story is going to end too. And so you're trying to, uh, in some ways, flag to your reader, like, we know where this is going. Keep this in mind. Remember this. Like, you're here's a little—just a little, you know, outro from an episode of Mork and Mindy that's really kind of bittersweet and all about the, uh, uh, you know, the burdens of celebrity. That's going to be really important later on. Here's a, a a kind of throwaway Saturday Night Live skit that he did in the 80s where he's already kind of ruminating on old age and losing his career and his fans. Uh, that's going to be important later, too. So, you you know, the one— advantage you have is that you, you know where the, the story is going and so you can you can point your camera wherever it makes the most sense and you can decide what to emphasize or you can sort of give your reader a, a little tap on the shoulder and say you know remember this uh, so I think certainly laying that all out in front of you as best you can before you start to write is uh, supremely important and and just writing Writing an outline, you know, for the obviously the the breadth of the book, writing chapter by chapter outlines was was very important, and then just writing. <laughs> I guess that's the best way to put it. And and in the writing, things it come up. You remember, you 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 you're not. It's not like you're Charles Dickens and you have to keep publishing something every week. You're you're kind of writing it in. You know, you you have it in in your. You know, in your computer, and you can say, "Oh, hey, I remember. I, I put this thing in chapter sixteen. That reminds me of this thing way back in chapter two. Did I did I remember to set that up so that this pays off? Oh, I didn't. Let me let me go back to chapter two and put that back in. Uh, you know, the, all 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 those kinds of strategies.
1: Great. Do you do you write just in a word processing program, or do you use sort of a more of a story management?
2: program no no I I just I just use Microsoft Word uh, but I, I you know I still am big on notebooks and note cards like very uh, old school kind of tactile uh, y- you know uh, paraphernalia like that I, I realize it's a little outdated and maybe you know this no <laughs> no I do
1: that too <laughs> or maybe we're both outdated. <laughs>
2: I <laughs> like maybe maybe you know for another this you know if I if I had a project where I had sort of infinite time or I wasn't stressing about a deadline maybe I would uh you know, try out. You know, there are obviously a lot more sophisticated uh, computer programs to to do all these sorts of things and to take the place of the the big note card pile. Uh, so I, I'm 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 open to adapting my uh, my strategies, but just for this particular project, because uh, you know I just wanted to get everything just right. Uh, yeah, there was really no room for for uh, you know this was not the time to teach an old dog new tricks.
1: <laughs> and so for you, what do you think what's the hardest part for you of writing a biography? What's the part that that you struggle with the most?
2: Hmm. I guess it's an interesting uh question. I think it's it's maybe it's you know when you sort of flip the switch from the research mode to the writing mode because in some ways you could always be doing one more interview or uh, looking at one more archival source or tracking down one more magazine article or whatever it is there's always a little bit more and and frankly even in the course of writing the book there were a couple of pretty uh, important interviews that came through uh fairly late in the game not not too late and I was very grateful to uh, to have them but uh that that was uh at, at times a source of anxiety and I I certainly could have I could have lived without that but it's just not the way the, that uh you know the industry works or that people's lives uh work at a certain point you've just got to say okay uh i got to start writing this thing one way or another and and let the chips fall where they they may and so uh that 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 was like the making that kind of transition was uh probably a little stressful to say okay now i'm really in a writing mode and 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 to some extent just writing the very first chapter and trying to figure out well what what is the tone going to be? How, how do I, you know, even though a reader comes in knowing who the book is about, like those first few pages are going to say a lot to them about the story they're about to read and how I view Robin and how and, and, and my perspective on his world. What do I say? It was supremely important. You can really get fixated on that for a while, and I, I know I did. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was wondering if the tone comes more from you or more from Robin. You know, are you thinking of his voice when you're when you're writing or is it really is it really your voice?
2: I, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, I I think it would be very dangerous of me if I were to try to write the book in some kind of tone like I'm emulating him because he was so singular. And you see people fall on their face all the time trying to do even a kind of uh, half-assed, uh, you know, imitation or impersonation of him. And I like, I I hope people uh, like, I, you know, I tried to to sprinkle. Some humor throughout the book, but I didn't necessarily want this to be uh, a humorous book per se or to try to show off, like, look how funny I can be. Uh, I think you want the tone to be dictated by how you think about the subject, and also sort of where you are in their life at different times. There are certainly parts of Robin's life that are tremendously exciting, and when his career is taking off and just going to these astronomical heights that nobody really had, had achieved and very few have reached since, it's thrilling, and you want the reader to kind of feel that momentum and to be caught up in that and to get a kind of secondhand uh, joy from it and sadly, of course, you know there are parts that are going to be terribly tragic. It's it's going to have just no way to avoid some of the the realities of of how Robin's life ended. And you also want to prepare people for that. You don't want to just suddenly turn on a dime and and, and have it feel really uh, bleak. I think you really want people to be ready for that and and know that it's coming and 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 uh, just kind of have that uh, feel as smooth as possible when they do arrive at it.
1: Right. Well, this project came across my desk because you're creating a podcast uh, based on the book. So can you can you tell us more about sort of how that came about and especially, like, what it's going to be like and where people can find it?
2: Uh, it's, it's a very new thing to me. I don't want to take full credit or even uh, partial credit because it's something that, uh, you know— McMillan, uh, which is the parent company of Holt, which published the book, uh, they were all very kind enough to come to me and say uh, they thought that there was a, a, a potential and opportunity uh, for a podcast to be made around this book, which I thought was a, a terrific uh, idea. I think that Robin is just a, a person that we, uh, even though we have been without him for five years now, we still like to uh, reimmerse ourselves in, in the work that he did and learn about his life and and remember what was great about it and so this seemed like just another opportunity to uh, you know, have, have people, uh, experience that in, in, uh, a medium that I, I, you know, I've been a podcast, uh, guest and that's about the extent to which I've, uh, you know, that, that I know podcasts. So to see just, to, again, I'm, I'm just one, one participant in it. You'll hear my voice in it a lot, but also, uh, many other people, uh, the people that, uh, some people who were, Uh, primary sources for the book who are giving new interviews, Uh, people that I uh, maybe missed the first time around or other people who have uh, important connections to Robin who have slightly different stories to share that maybe weren't right for a biography but will still illuminate him and his life uh, also participating. And, uh, you know, I I get to just also – be a kind of fan of it and, and discover how the podcast turns out and, and uh, you know, and, and still get to go home to my wife and my son at the end of the day and, and not have to stress about it.
1: <laughs> and what's it going to be called?
2: It's going to be called Knowing Robin Williams.
1: Oh, nice. That's going to be great. Thank you. And so so that'll come out really soon. It might be available now. Anything's um, possible.
2: The, the Internet is a crazy place.
1: <laughs> right, we can't predict. But right. But uh, know, knowing Robin Williams. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dave Itzikoff, for being here with me today. It was wonderful to hear about your process in writing this book. Um, where's the best place for people to find you online besides I, the podcast? Right.
2: I, I I, I am usually on Twitter at d Itzikoff, D-I-T-Z-K-O-F-F, and you can read me in the New York Times.
1: Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find a transcript of this podcast and all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips podcasters at quickanddirtytips.com. And if you're looking for a fun holiday gift—I know, I'm sorry it's that time of year already—you might want to check out my card game, Peeve Wars. I hardly ever mention it, but it's a fun, family-friendly game you can play in about 20 minutes. People love it. The cards are all cartoon pet peeves, and the goal is to amass an army of peas and annoy your opponents to death. It's sold through a company called Game Crafter, and you can find it by doing a Google search for Grammar Girl Peeve Wars. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams, And that's all. Thanks for listening.